Welcome to Life Source Church. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud. Today you're going to hear a message from Pastor Walt that we hope encourages you. What an amazing book this is. Man, it's changed my life in so, so many ways. Good ways. Ways that I never could have figured out or addressed on my own. And this book talks to us about this day that we're celebrating, Palm Sunday. We go back into the book of Daniel, and Daniel wrote uh, words a little over 500 years before Palm Sunday, the day when Jesus rode into Jerusalem. Remember the hosannas and the palm branches and all that, a celebration of him as the Messiah who had been promised. And Daniel had said from a certain decree that was going to go out till the time when uh, the Messiah was presented in Israel was going to be 483 years. And we can get the calendars out and chart that because we know when that decree went out and chart that and discover to the day that that prophecy was fulfilled. Can we count on God to do what he says? Can we count on his word to be true? Absolutely. Can we count on us always understanding it and living it? That's another issue, isn't it, right? We're the weak link there. But God is so gracious and works in our lives and help us to get where we need to get. And what we wanna do today is to focus in on, I mean, Jesus is riding in on, you know, a donkey and, and which was a fulfillment of the prophecy and they're so excited to have him. But Jesus was headed somewhere and it wasn't just Jerusalem. Jesus was headed to the cross by the end of that week. And the cross is essential to everything it means to be a Christian. And and so it's really important that we understand what the Word of God has to say about it. And that's what we want to do here today. Because we know the story, right? Jesus goes to the cross the end of this week, and on Sunday morning he rises from the dead. And that's next week we're going to celebrate that in a special way. But let's take our Bibles and go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And that is page 1311 in the Bible that's there in the chairs. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. So the Apostle Paul here is writing the Corinthian church, and the Corinthian church had a lot of problems, and so he was going to address those problems with them. Uh, But he starts off talking about what a great church they were, what a great group of people they were, what a gifted church that they were. And then he says, you know, you got some problems with division. And so then right away what he does is he brings them to the... uh, the issue that really unites all of us. Um, The issue of how we come into a relationship with Christ. You know, everybody comes into a relationship with Christ. You come from all different places, right? People have all different kinds of backgrounds, all different ways that they have thought about life and God and all different things that they've done and not done. You come from all different places. But the only way you come into a relationship with Christ is we all got to come eventually to that same place. And it's the issue of the cross, what it means 
that is that same place. So the Apostle Paul, he, he just said, hey, you guys are divided. We ought not to be divided. And then he brings them to this issue that brings us all to the same place. Verse 18. He says, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So those who do not know the Lord, those who don't understand what God has done on the cross, think the cross is like, what's the big deal? Or that's silly or foolish or whatever. Uh, but for when we... April the 4th, 1975, my eternal destiny changed because of what Jesus did for me at the cross. The power of God. Verse 19, and what's God's, or the scriptures, what Paul's going to do here in this passage of scripture is show us how um, that God makes everybody come down humbly through the cross. Nobody gets to pat themselves on the back because, well, I figured out how to get saved. I figured out how to have a relationship with God. I figured out how to deal with my sins. He says, no, 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 no. We all come the same way. Verse 19, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? He's talking about with respect to how do we address our sin problem and have a relationship with God. The world's ways don't work. Verse 21, for since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. And what's the message preached? He just said what? The message of the cross. Verse 22, for Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom. Those were marks of their cultures. Verse 23, but we preach Christ crucified. The message of the cross. We preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than the men. And that's just like a major understatement, don't you suppose? Um, and God's foolishness is not foolish, but it's foolish to the natural man. All right, so let's go to chapter two. So he said, okay, you guys are divided. Look, here, here's where we all come to. We all come to this place of the cross. We must humble ourselves there Chapter 2, verse 1. And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, human eloquence, we might say, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And that's what he said back in verse 18, that the message of the cross is what? It is the power of God. And so this is central to everything that it means to be a Christian. It is central to how we can have a relationship with Christ. 
And there's no other way than through the cross. Now, you probably remember that there's another passage of scripture where the apostle Paul wrote about not being ashamed of the gospel of Christ, which includes the cross, right? For it is the power of God unto salvation, right? Well, let's, let's, I'm going to do a little scripture mashup here with you, okay? From our passage here in 1 Corinthians and the passage in Romans chapter 1. Go ahead and go to that. The message of the cross, what he says here, the gospel of Christ, what he says in Romans, is the power of God, which he says here in 1 Corinthians, is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. The gospel the cross. There is no gospel without the cross. There is no good news without the cross. So let's focus in now on what we learn from the cross, what it is that the cross shows us. And the very first thing is this, that it's Jesus' death on the cross shows us the horrific nature of our sin. It's... Sometimes we feel overwhelmed with our sin. There's times when we know our sin is bad. But I gotta tell you, we do not see our sins anywhere near the way God sees our sins. Okay, the, the impact of them, of what they really mean. And it points out, as we'll see before we're done here, the horrific nature of our sin. Turn in your Bibles to the book of Isaiah. Closer to the middle of your Bible. Isaiah chapter 6. It's a characteristic of God which is really the outstanding, most obvious character of, of, uh, characteristic of God in the Old Testament. And we find it here in Isaiah verse, uh, chapter 6 and verse 1. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, and, and that was 739 B.C., he says, I saw the Lord. I had a vision of the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. Uh, very unique creatures. And they were created for a very special purpose, as we will see here. And you can see it again in Revelation chapter 4. It says, verse 3, these creatures, and one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And when we look in Revelation chapter 4, we see that they do not stop day or night saying that. So again, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. Holy, holy, holy. And so this is 700 BC, and we're at least we're at over 2,000 after the birth of Christ. So we're looking at 2,700 years. If we went to heaven right now, we would find these creatures still to this day saying, "Holy, holy, holy! How holy is God?" That that to try to proclaim it requires these creatures day and night, day and night, never stopping. How? Holy is God. Holy. Verse 4, And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. So I said, it's Isaiah, Woe is me, for I am undone. And that word undone can also be translated destroyed. I am wiped out by this, what I have just seen. 
by the holiness of God. Woe is me, for I am done, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Now, that's, that's not, it just isn't a, a way we talk these days. But to say, if I have unclean lips, do you remember what Jesus said? He said, what comes out of the mouth? Eventually, what comes out of the mouth? What's what? What's in the heart? And so when he's talking about here, I'm a man of unclean lips, he's saying that deep down in my heart I am unclean. And it comes out. And the people, everyone else around me, same way. And, and why does he say, I am undone, I am destroyed, I am wiped out? Why is he saying that? It's because he just saw a vision of the holiness of God and he sees that he has sinned and still struggles with sin. And he says, why? Because for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. I have seen this Holy One. Um, and so when you and I start to understand the holiness of God and the terribleness of sin, we're going to be like Isaiah here. And by the way, both of those things come together in the cross. Okay? So how does God feel about sin then? And those who choose to reject God and to continue in sin in their own ways. Go to uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. That's page 1360 in the Bible there in the chairs. And then in this passage, Paul is talking about what's going to come at the end of days before uh, God comes and returns and establishes his kingdom here on earth. He's talking about uh, of someone you would probably call the Antichrist. He calls him the man of lawlessness here who's going to stand in opposition to God. But let's look and see what Paul says about it here. Verse number seven. This was in Paul's day. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. He's talking about the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit that is in the world here today, that he is restraining Satan. He is restraining the evil one. Now, Could you imagine the world if the Holy Spirit wasn't restraining sin? Is it pretty bad now? Yeah, and I contribute to it from time to time. But the Holy Spirit is holding this back. But he says there's going to come a time when he no longer holds it back. And this will be, what, you know, if I were teaching us, I'd say this is in the, the Great Tribulation. But look, look what it says here now, verse 8. And then the lawless one, the Antichrist, will be revealed whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. So how does God feel about sin when someone takes it up and says, I am the man of sin? He's going to what? Just, ah, and destroy him. Verse 9, the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish. And why are they perishing? He says, because they did not receive the love of the truth, that they might be saved. They didn't come to love truth. They, they wanted their own ways instead. You know, when we're confronted with the gospel, it's the gospel truth. 
You guys are there, right? Is the gospel true? It's absolute truth. And it's, it's, it's a story of the one who is the truth, the embodiment of truth. And if you say, no, I don't want that, go your own way. That's what he's talking about here. They, they didn't love the truth. They loved something more. They loved themselves more. They loved pleasures more. They loved their own ways more. And I'm saying they. Do you realize who this is? It's every one of us apart from the grace and mercy of God from Adam and Eve on down, okay? But we want, we're looking here, how does God feel about this? In verse 11, and for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie. We get into the tribulation, and these people have already chosen uh, evil and sin, they've rejected God, and so God just ups the level of their rejection. Verse 12, that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in righteousness. How bad is sin? that God would condemn people because they choose it over him. How does God feel about sin? God hates sin. So that's okay. And we don't usually stand up and talk about what God hates. But God hates sin. Very clearly. Zechariah chapter 8 and verse 17, it says this. Let none of you think evil in your heart against your neighbor and do not love a false oath for all these are things that I hate, says the Lord. And we could go through scripture and find a bunch of things that God says he hates like this. In Proverbs chapter six, he says, these six things the Lord hates, yes, seven are an abomination to him. And he goes through this list of things that God hates and they are all sin. God hates sin. And um, this creates us a problem, doesn't it? Anybody here besides me commit at least one sin this week? God hates sin. Very clear. And so even us as Christians, those of us who have experienced his forgiveness, we, we must be careful what we choose. And, and we ought not to see sin as a light thing. Oh, not a big deal, I'm forgiven. Oh, wait a minute, you need to look at that again. James, uh, chapter four, he says, adulterers, you adulterers. And he, when he's talking about adulterers here, it could include people who are actually being guilty of the literal sin of adultery, but more, uh, he's mostly talking to people who are being unfaithful to God. Just like an adulterer is unfaithful in their marriage, he's talking about you spiritually adulterers, you are unfaithful to God. He says, don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? I say it again, if you want to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. And we're talking about the world. He's not talking about that beautiful sunset that you love or the warm breeze or the flowers or any of that kind of stuff. He's talking about the world that stands in opposition to him. That's what he's talking about. And there is a whole world out, system out there that stands in opposition to God. And if you want to be loved by them, you're putting yourself in opposition to God. And how does God feel about sin? How does he feel about it? He hates it. He hates sin. Turn to Romans chapter 3. 
in this passage, God is going to describe to us, and he's using a bunch of scriptures from the Old Testament, the Apostle Paul quoting them, what we would be like by nature if God had not worked in our lives. If we had not experienced the grace of God, we had not been exposed to Christianity, all this kind of stuff. This is what we would be like. Verse number nine, he says, What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. By that he means everybody in the world. As it is written, There is none righteous. No, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips. Asps, poisonous snake. Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And the Apostle Paul here is saying, this is the way we as human beings are apart from the work of God in our lives, which is why the rest of the chapter he says nobody can be saved by living right. It isn't going to happen. It's too late anyway. You've already messed it up. You've already blown it. And God hates sin. And that's what you and I were by nature from birth. And then we lived it out. If you didn't know the end of the story, you could get pretty worried, couldn't you? So God hates sin. No question about it. And we need to learn to hate sin too. Oh, but the good news is that while God hates sin, God loves sinners. That's such good news. Those of us who have sinned, which is all of us, We've been victimized by a lie and believing it and, and it's, it's brought damage into our lives. Terrible damage into our lives which we are still recovering from and will be until that day when the Lord either comes to bring us home when our life comes to an end or he comes and takes us all home in the rapture. We're going to be on the road to recovery still dealing with this in our life. And so... Jesus' death on the cross shows the horrific nature of our sin, but it also shows us the amazing depth of God's love for us. The cross. Because I want you to think about this. God hates sin. Sin must be judged for God to be just and holy and right. You know, if, if, if from time to time it makes the news where a judge, you know, in, in our court system, a judge just kind of lets somebody off, right, who never should have been let off. Have you ever seen that in the news or heard it? Occasionally it happens and you go, what's up with that? That's not right. Well, God is a perfect and holy and righteous judge. He must judge sin. Because it's an offense to him in his holiness. And it breaks his laws and the things, the ways he's told us to live. He must judge sin. But, but he loves us, the ones who are guilty. 
In order, if he's going to remain a just judge, a holy judge, a righteous judge, all these things that it says that God is, can he just let us off the hook? Can he let, just let sinners off the hook? I, you know, you think I'm asking you a trick question. But I'm not. No, he can't. A holy God, a just God, must judge sin, or he is unjust, and he is not unjust. Now, that means there's this guilt for sin, and the penalty must be paid. But here's the problem. So I have a sin debt, right? I've sinned against God. I am guilty of it. There's a penalty to be paid. I cannot sufficiently pay it. I don't have a way to pay it. In fact, if you think about it, we look at the scripture and we discover that if, if, if I don't receive, if I didn't receive Christ as Savior, that uh, I would find myself in hell paying the penalty for my sins. But I can never pay enough. That's why the Bible tells us hell is eternal. Because I, I can't ever pay it off. And so here's the conundrum for God. I mean, and, you know, I don't think God can ever be put in a rock in a hard place, but this is the way I thought about it this morning. Here he is. He has to be a just and righteous judge, but he also loves us who have sinned and who are guilty. And it comes down to there's only one possible way for him to deal with this. And that is that he has to pay. He has to pay. He is the only one who can make sufficient payment for our sins. And so this is where God determines to pay the penalty for us. He, and where his son comes into the world and lives a perfect and holy, sinless life. He's God. He's also fully human. No sin. But he's God as well. And then as he goes to the cross and he hangs on the cross and, and, and uh, Amanda read this to us in our worship today but in Isaiah 53 it says these words. What did God do? It says he, Jesus, was wounded for our transgressions. The Lord, God the Father, has laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. His soul an offering for sin. He shall bear their iniquities. He bore the sin of many. And so as Jesus hangs on the cross, a just and holy God judges sin. He judges sin and, and penalizes sin and the penalty is paid. God pours out his wrath on sin. On Jesus. Who sinned? My sin, your sin, sins of the whole world. He dies and God faithfully, righteously judges sin completely. Every sin that you or I ever have or ever will commit, Jesus died paying the penalty. Is God a holy and righteous God to do what he said? Yes. But he's also then a what? A loving God. Think about what Jesus experienced because 
Um, Oftentimes we think of the crucifixion and the crucifixion as a physical form of death was a a terrible, terrible, I mean nightmarish uh, way to die. And because really you didn't die directly from crucifixion. Crucifixion was a torture that just persisted until you finally couldn't live anymore. And so that's a terrible thing. But I want you to know that that is not the worst thing that Jesus experienced for us. When I've watched The Passion of the Christ, have you seen the movie The Passion of the Christ back you know, when Mel Gibson made that movie? And it's, it was a great movie in so many ways. But Mel Gibson, I think, uh, and like many, he really, it's almost like he made up this physical agony was how Jesus paid for the sins of the world. But that's not the way it worked. Because it's, as he's hanging there experiencing the physical agony, what do we see? What did the Father do? He put the guilt for my sin on him. Have you ever felt overwhelmed by your own guilt? Have you ever committed a sin? Oh, you know, I can't. Well, how would you like to experience all of those sins and guilt from your life all at once? It would destroy you, wouldn't it? How about somebody else's? But Jesus took all of that on him. I can't, I just, it's beyond what I can really imagine and understand. And Hebrews describes it like this. It says that Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame. And look, endured such hostility from sinners against himself. And this isn't talking about those who had crucified him. They were sinners, but it isn't talking about how mean they were to him. No, this is talking about the hostility of sinners against him. It was me. It was my sin that was against him there. It was your sin that was against him there. And it's interesting, in the old King James, they translate it this way, who endured such contradiction of sinners against himself. Because holy God taking my sin and your sins and the sins of the whole world and paying the penalty for us because we were incapable of it and he loved us and he needed to be just and holy and provide a way for us to be forgiven. But how bad was this for him? Somehow so bad for Christ that as he hangs there, you remember what's he finally say as he's bearing this? He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And this is the end. He's quoting from Psalm 24. No, 22, sorry. Quoting from Psalm 22. The anguish of his soul as a a man. He's also God. And how does this work? Between God the Father and God the Son. I don't know how that works, but there was a tearing and a ripping and a pain. By the way, it is just so cool because Jesus says, and and the author of Hebrews quotes him in chapter 3, he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He knows what it's like to be forsaken for your sin. He says, I'll never let that happen to you. Good news, isn't it? And and this was very, very personal as well, what what Jesus did for us on the cross. Because, 
I don't want you to think that, that as Jesus dies, here he is, the holy, perfect son of God, he's dying on the cross, that he kind of gets a bag of sins that he puts over his shoulder. No, no, he took it on himself, into himself. In fact, uh, um, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, it says this, that for he, God the Father, made him the son who knew no sin, to what? To be sin for us. And so that, the identity was so close. It, it, it's like, he never sinned, right? But it's like it became his sin. That's how close and real and personal it was. But the good news as well is then he did this, so what? That we might become, become the righteousness of God in him. That his righteousness, we don't get a bag of righteousness we add to our lives as Christians. He makes us righteous deep down inside and begins the process of making us righteous in how we live our lives. So Jesus' death on the cross shows this Amazing depth of God's love for us. It shows the hatred of God for sin, that this had to happen. But it also shows his love. Say it with me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And we know the rest. You believe and be saved. But when it says he gave, what's it mean? He sent him to the cross. This was the plan before the world was created. He knew it was going to have to happen. What kind of love is this? How do, how do we fathom this kind of love? So his death on the cross shows us the horrific nature of, of our sins and sin in general and the holiness of God. And then the cross also shows us his love for us, his deep, deep love. Do we need to remember this? Duh. We need to remember this. How often? Well, daily, sometimes moment by moment. We need to remember it. Well, God has provided something that he wants us to do together as a church to remember it. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, let's turn there. But we see that the Lord's Supper reminds us of Jesus' death on the cross for us. Because the Lord's, well, let's see, we'll just read the words here. Chapter 11, starting in verse 23. Paul says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. You proclaim it to anyone who would see and know. You proclaim it to yourself. We proclaim it to each other. We remind ourselves of these things, doing it in remembrance of him. And so when he talks about his body, the bread symbolizing his body, uh, the Bible is very clear. We read in Romans chapter six that when Christ died and he died his body, that he died to sin. 
uh, once and for all. Once he died, uh, the no more impact of sin, gone. By the way, dead people don't sin. This might be a new revelation. <laughs> dead people don't sin. And so it is, but it's, the Bible tells us that the moment that we believe in Jesus Christ, is God spiritually unites us with Jesus in his death. Okay? So the spiritual truth, deep down inside us truth, is that God freed us from the controlling power of sin. We can say no. We can say yes to God and no to sin because he died for us on the cross. And then when he talks about the cup, the, the wine uh, representing the blood, he doesn't, yeah, he does here, the covenant of my blood, the blood of Christ. In, in the Bible, throughout the law, we see that the shedding of blood was about forgiveness of sins. And so as he died on the cross, paying the penalty for my sins, every one of them, he provided forgiveness for every one of my sins. How many of them? All of them. Even the ones I haven't committed yet, his buddy paid the penalty for that. That's right, so I am forgiven. Unless you think that means, oh good, I can go live however I want. Go back and remember the first part of the sermon. God hates sin. And the one who loved me and saved me, I don't want to sin against him. Sadly, I do off and on, but. All right, so this, how seriously should we take this? How seriously should we take the cross? Very seriously, right? Because it shows the, the, the holiness of God, the horrific nature of our sin, and it shows us the love of God. We ought to take it very seriously. So how seriously should we take the symbol? Seriously. And the Apostle Paul talks about that here. Verse 27, he says, Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you and many sleep. He's telling the Corinthians how they had been with this, that God had judged them. Verse 31, for if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. And so when we get ready to partake of the Lord's Supper, we remind ourselves of this, that this is serious business. You know, this, this bread that we're going to eat and this juice that we're going to drink, there's no magic powers in here. This doesn't miraculously, this doesn't forgive our sin. What forgave our sin is Jesus, Right? And when we believed and put our faith in him, that's what saved us. But this is a symbol of it. And as such, we should take it very, very seriously. And so the question for you today, the challenge for you today is, what is your life saying about how seriously you take this? Are there known sins in your life that you are just allowing? I'm not talking about struggling with sin. You can struggle with sin. Christians struggle with sin off and on all the time, right? I'm talking about sin that you finally stopped struggling with and said, oh, well, don't do that. That's not taking this seriously. Uh, if you know that you are in a wrong relationship, if you know that you aren't treating 
other person in your relationship right. If you, whatever. What I want to do is just take about a minute or so here, quietly, let's bow our heads before the Lord. And just take a little inventory and stock. And if there's something in your life that you say, yeah, that does not line up, confess it to the Lord and turn away from it. You are loved by God so much more than you even realize. As much as you think you understand about how much God loves you, he loves you more. That's good news, isn't it? All right, God bless you. Go live this week for the Lord, remembering what he's done for you, and we will be back here to worship and celebrate in a special way his resurrection next Sunday.